from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloronipo with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post calling. This is Post Reports. I'm Lina Muhammad. It's Thursday, March 25th. Today, Biden's first press conference, the NCAA's women's basketball problem, and giving new life to a box office flop. Biden finally gave his first formal press conference today. Jackie Alamini writes the Power Up newsletter. And it was notable because this is the longest a president has gone without giving a press conference into the start of an administration. I think that it was a little more notable also because this is a president who has in the past faced some criticisms for his lack of discipline. He's called himself a gaffe machine. From what we've seen so far, he's been pretty on message, but we were anticipating that he would get a lot of tough questions. Yeah, and briefly, can you just walk me through the topics that Biden ended up talking about? The surge of influx in immigrants arriving at the U.S. border, along with questions about the filibuster, his administration's policy towards unaccompanied minors, how he's going to protect voting rights. But he's also faced a number of questions about foreign policy. North Korea just fired two ballistic missiles, how he would handle that, the war in Afghanistan, and then gun legislation, infrastructure, other pending legislative pushes that the White House is planning on going for as soon as the stimulus package is sort of fully implemented. He wasn't notably asked about the coronavirus all that much, although I think we should note that it is still a crisis and an ongoing one at that. Was any part of today's press conference surprising to you? I think because of all of the crises and various policies that have been going on in the Biden administration's 100-day sprint, the first 100 days in their administration, I didn't expect there to be as much political and campaign talk as we saw today. But CBS News' Nancy Cordes asked Biden if he planned on running for president again for re-election in 2024, which, you know, has sort of been a question looming over him. He's, you know, President Biden has called himself the bridge to the next generation. And there's just been some speculation that he potentially wouldn't run again after four years and that Kamala Harris would be his successor. And, you know, he answered that question today by saying that he was planning on running again. That was his expectation. And when asked if he'd be running against former President Trump for re-election, he made an interesting comment on the Republican Party saying he didn't even know if the GOP would exist in four years. So, Jackie, it is 2.30 p.m. right now. The press conference is still going on right now. But it seems like Biden was asked quite a bit about the filibuster, including whether he thought it was a relic of the Jim Crow era, whether he agreed with that statement, and if he had any plans on reforming it. What what did he say to that? Biden was asked in several different ways by our fellow reporters about his position on the filibuster. He dodged each and every question. He did say, though, that he believed, yes, affirmatively, that the filibuster was a relic of the Jim Crow era. Regarding the filibuster, at John Lewis's funeral, President Barack Obama said he believed the filibuster was a relic of the Jim Crow era. Do you agree? Yes. 
If not, why not abolish it if it's a relic of the Jim Crow era? The point was conveyed that he believes that the filibuster existed for racist purposes. He has said that he would do everything in his power to pass legislation to protect voting rights, but he still wouldn't commit to outright eliminating and scrapping this procedural maneuver that is really imperiling his entire legislative agenda. As Biden himself noted, our preoccupation is acceptable at this point. It's warranted. We've amended the filibuster in the past, but here's the deal. As you observed, I'm a fairly practical guy. I want to get things done. I want to get them done consistent with what we promised the American people. And in order to do that, in a 50-50 Senate, we've got to get to the place where I get 50 votes so that the Vice President of the United States can break the tie, or I get 51 votes without her. And so I'm going to say something outrageous. I have never been particularly poor at calculating how to get things done in the United States Senate. So the best way to get something done, if you, if it holds near and dear to you that you uh, um, like to be able to, anyway, I'm, we're going to get a lot done. And if we have to, if there's complete lockdown and chaos as a consequence of the filibuster, then we'll have to go beyond what I'm talking about. Another reason that the filibuster is going to come into play is, you know, when we're talking about gun control. Americans are still dealing with the aftermath of two back-to-back shootings. Um, And and just this past week, um, Biden came out and said that he was for um, having gun control. Was he asked about that at all today? He was asked about that. And again, it is another question that is really contingent on whether or not Democrats decide to do away with the filibuster. Can your presidency be a success if you can't make progress on those four challenges, climate change, immigration reform, gun control, voting rights? Well, I plan on making progress on all of them, but that's going to be for the American people to decide. I think, you know, I I doubt whether maybe you did, maybe others did. I I, I thought many of you thought there was no possibility of my getting the, the plan I got passed, passed without any Republican votes. Pretty big deal. Got passed. Growing the economy. People's lives are changing. So let's see what happens. All I know, I've been hired to solve problems, to solve problems, not create division. Another topic that President Biden was asked about extensively today was immigration and this sort of growing number of migrants who are crossing into the U.S. from the southern border. The president was a bit defensive on the issue, actually, even though our colleagues have extensively reported out on the data that his own Department of Homeland Security has been providing us that's showing that the number uh, and the influx of immigrants arriving at the southern border right now is hitting a 20-year record. Thanks so much, Mr. President. Um, You've said over and over again that immigrants shouldn't come to this country right now. This isn't the time to come. That message is not being received. Instead, the perception of you that got you elected as a moral, decent man is the reason why a lot of immigrants are coming to this country and entrusting you with unaccompanied minors. How do you resolve that tension? And how are you choosing which families can stay and which can can go, given the fact that even though with Title 42, there are some families that are staying? And is there a timeline for when we won't be seeing these overcrowded facilities with run by CPB when it comes to unaccompanied minors? 
Well, look, I guess I should be flattered. People are coming because I'm the nice guy. That's the reason why it's happening. That I'm a decent man or however it's phrased. That, you know, that's why they're coming, because no, Biden's a good guy. Truth of the matter is, nothing has changed. As many people came, 28% increase in children to the border in my administration, 31% in the last year of, in 2019 before the pandemic in the Trump administration. It happens every single solitary year. There is a significant increase in the number of people coming to the border in the winter months of January, February, March. It happens every year. In addition to that, there is a and nobody. And by the way, does anybody suggest that there was a 31 percent increase under Trump because he was a nice guy and he was doing good things at the border? That's not the reason they're coming. The reason they're coming is that it's the time they can travel with the least likelihood of dying on the way because of the heat in the desert, number one. Number two, they're coming because of the circumstances in country, in country. Another one of his defenses that I, I personally uh, found striking was that he said that this happens every year, that, you know, in the, the, the early months of every year, we see a spike in crossings at the border. Is that true? Actually, funny enough, he might be getting that from what is essentially an opinion column written by the monkey cage, an arm of the, the Washington Post that was using old data. But the data that we are, they were using data from March to make that argument. And we saw the Biden administration tweet and tout that piece that was written that, again, was using outdated data on the numbers of unaccompanied minors, but using it, trying to use it to their you know, PR advantage. But if you talk to all of the reporters at the Post who have been covering this, they're they're looking at the numbers on a consistent basis. They're getting updated numbers from DHS. And those numbers are not consistent with what the Biden administration is claiming. These, this is a record surge that we are seeing. And obviously, all of this is going on during a pandemic. Now, the United States has been vaccinating its population. And when President Biden first came into office, he had said that he one of his goals for his first one first hundred days is to have at least 100 million Americans vaccinated. Did he give us any updates on that? He did. That was the good piece of news that the president was able to lead this press conference with. I want to make give you a progress report to the nation on uh on the, where we stand 65 days into office here on vaccinations and a few other top priorities for the American people. First, on vaccinations. On December 8th, I indicated that I hope to get 100 million shots in people's arms in my first 100 days. We met that goal last week by day 58, 42 days ahead of schedule. He doubled that figure and said that the nation's on track now to meet 200 million getting vaccinated by his 100th day in office. Now today I'm setting a second goal, and that is we will, by my 100th day in office, have administered 200 million shots in people's arms. That's right, 200 million shots in 100 days. I know it's ambitious, twice our original goal, but no other country in the world has even come close, not even close to what we were doing. I believe we can do it. 
So this is Biden's first press conference as president. It's also his first solo press conference. And it comes, obviously, after four years of Trump press conferences. And so I'm curious, how different was today's press conference from those that we've seen over the past four years? It was a startling difference just in alone in the way it was handled. A lot of people were waiting for this this day to sort of gauge whether or not, again, Biden was actually going to be as disciplined of a messenger as he has been because, you know, he hasn't yet had this opportunity to answer, take, take, the, take questions from White House reporters. And I think he showed that he is planning on being hyper-disciplined while the White House is really managing a multitude of crises from the coronavirus pandemic to the border to the economy. Biden sort of said it himself. He doesn't want to be the biggest story here, the center of attention. Jackie Alamany is the author of the Post newsletter, Power Up. Ariel Plotnik produced this story. I got something to show y'all. So for the NCAA March Madness, the biggest tournament in college basketball for women. This is our weight room. Sedona Prince is a player for the Oregon women's basketball team. And last week she posted a video on social media of the weight room accommodations at the women's NCAA tournament. Sally Jenkins is a sports columnist for The Post. And they consisted of about a half a dozen hand weights and some yoga mats. Let me show you all the men's weight room. And then she also showed the weight room at the men's tournament in Indianapolis. And it was this enormous palatial room full of, you know, state-of-the-art equipment, every conceivable weight machine and training apparatus. Now, when pictures of our weight room got released versus the men's, the NCAA came out with a statement saying that it wasn't money, it was space that was a problem. Let me show y'all something else. Here's our practice court, right? And then here's that weight room. And then here's all this extra space. Well, it went totally viral. She got millions of viewers on TikTok. She got immediate response from NCAA coaches. The women's coaches were really beside themselves. They were outraged. This is a long-running problem in women's basketball, disparate treatment of women's basketball programs and the women's basketball tournament. And so coaches like Dawn Staley, you know, national championship caliber coaches said this is a not a one-off issue. This is a long-term perennial chronic problem in our sport. So how does what happened during the women's basketball tournament fit into the sort of larger issue of the NCAA's handling of women's sports? You know, the NCAA is defined as an educational nonprofit. It is responsible for ensuring opportunities for all athletes, not just men who bring in the lion's share of revenue. And yet their focus is always on the March Madness basketball tournament. And one thing we've learned in the last week is that the NCAA has been very, very unequal in its promotion of the men's basketball tournament versus the women's basketball tournament. One thing you'll notice if you watch on ESPN is the women's courts 
don't even say the word championship. They don't even say the word final four. Whereas if you look at the men's tournament on CBS, you will see enormous promotional decals and brightly lit state-of-the-art floors. It's just a completely different presentation. And coaches will tell you that it is depressing the audience for the women's tournament. Wow. Let's let's break that down, that, that inequality a bit further. Just generally, how does the NCAA treat their men's teams? Well, they treat them like professionals. They're in the best hotels. They have literally concierge service in Indianapolis. There are uh, volunteers standing by to run to the nearest drugstore to get anything a male athlete might want. Whereas at the women's tournament, I actually just spoke to a coach this morning who said that after her team won a game to reach the NCAA Sweet 16, they had to walk three quarters of a mile to their COVID testing site. Oh my God. Well, after nine o'clock at night, after they were exhausted, you know, it's not, it's not what you want your basketball team doing uh, when you're trying to win a championship. Yeah. The, the contrast is just so wild. I mean, they treat the men's team like celebrities, essentially. Well, and they are celebrities and look, you know, they, they are magnificent and they are entitled to first rate treatment, but so are all NCAA athletes. These are our most aspirational students. And again, it's supposed to be a nonprofit break even proposition. The idea here is the athletes are supposed to be the entire point. They're not supposed to be the afterthought. How has the NCAA responded? Like, why do they devote so few resources to women's sport? Like, what are they saying? The reason is. Well, I think they define the women as a cost burden. You know, you hear all the time from NCAA officials. I mean, I had this exchange this week with the NCAA. I said, why are the women not entitled to a cut of the revenue share? And why do you not market them as part of March Madness? I mean, the NCAA even withholds the term March Madness from the women's tournament. And the NCAA will response is the women do not generate, quote, net revenue. Now, net revenue is a, it's a very nebulous term, number one. And number two, it depends on the accounting. And the NCAA is notorious for bending its costs and its revenues in the direction that it wants, depending on, as one analyst told me, the story they're trying to tell. And, you know, revenue is a highly politicized and highly legalized topic right now for the NCAA. The NCAA is very, very opaque about its finances. We know what some of these contracts are worth, but we don't know what the language in them is. And we don't really know, you know, ESPN has a $500 million package with the NCAA to televise 24 national championship events. Women's basketball is one of those. And those revenues are blended. So the NCAA doesn't break out what the women are really bringing in or what proportion they consider the women to be bringing in from that contract. The same is true of this title sponsorships like Capital One or AT&T. The NCAA has a massive deal with those companies to be, quote, title sponsors or presenting sponsors. One thing you'll hear on ESPN or CBS is presented by Capital One. Well, what portion of those contracts can be attributable to the women's market? You know, the women's market is a very valuable market. They're more than half the population. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ESPN audience is a very diversified audience that has value. It's a Disney-owned company that's not charging peanuts for the advertising on the women's event. And not only that, but ESPN decided this year for the first time, they're broadcasting every women's game nationally on ESPN, and they are putting six games on ABC on its flagship network. They're doing that because they believe they can sell ads against that programming. And so the women's tournament has value. It's it's undeniable. It has market value. Now, again, 
market value is not the ultimate point here. The athletes are the ultimate point. The revenue is simply useful in terms of spreading it around and making sure that as many great athletes as possible can compete. Right. But let's tackle what the NCAA is saying. So they're saying that the women's sports are a cost burden. Is that actually true? Like, what are the actual numbers? We have trouble getting the actual numbers. We can only get indications and estimates. The actual numbers, according to one economist who studied self-reported numbers by NCAA schools, is that women's basketball actually generates close to a billion dollars in revenue. Now, if you can't break even or turn a profit on a billion dollars in revenue, something's really badly wrong with you. Mm. Daniel Rasher, who has testified as an expert in the NCAA's ongoing litigation, says that there's no way that they can be losing money on women's basketball based on the numbers that he is looking at as far as revenue. Right. But also, I'm thinking that if they're putting in less money, there's less marketing, there are less resources that are going into the women's teams, then it makes total sense that they're going to be making less money. So are they creating the self-fulfilling prophecy? That's what NCAA women's basketball coaches would tell you. You know, there's an old saying, if you build it, they will come. And the neglect that the NCAA has shown to the women's tournament has inhibited its growth. Now, it has grown anyway. It's actually grown into a surprisingly large and popular event, despite the fact that there's been absolutely no effort to conceive of a coherent marketing plan or long-term plan for, for audience growth and engagement. Despite that fact, ESPN tells me they have 77 companies advertising on the women's tournament this year. That's a very strong number. 17 of those advertisers are new advertisers that have come to the event just in the last two years. So it's growing despite the neglect of the NCAA. So then what do you think is the actual reason for them not even putting in the resources, especially when compared to men's sports? I think there's a couple of potential motivations here to keep the women's event sort of in its place, so to speak. And one is the fact that CBS and Turner have a gargantuan contract with the NCAA for the men's tournament that amounts to almost a billion dollars a year. And ESPN and the women are a competitor to that event. It's not in the best interest of CBS and Turner to see March Madness being used as a brand on ESPN, their competitor. And then the second thing is that it is in the NCAA's interest right now politically to say that certain sports are not revenue producing because of the hornet's nest argument that they are in in the courts over revenue producing athletes and whether athletes are entitled to uh, shares of the enormous revenues that the NCAA is bringing in from its mm. championships. And so there, there are really two potential motives here for the NCAA to not be particularly interested in promoting women's basketball as part of March Madness. How much of this do you think is just sexism and all of these old ideas that we have over what women can and cannot do? I think there is some baked in sexism. The NCAA essentially committed a hostile takeover of women's basketball in 1982. The women's basketball had grown itself from from a seed into something, a 16-team national championship under the umbrella of what that was called the AIAW, which was an amateur women's organization. The NCAA saw the growth of that tournament, saw the women's market emerging, saw a competitor. The NCAA wanted to be the overlord of all amateur sports in the United States, partly for Olympic reasons, to tell you the truth. They're 
closely allied with the USOC and the Olympic movement. Mm. And so what they did was they essentially told the women, we're taking you over. We are launching a women's basketball championship under the NCAA umbrella. It will be more desirable. And the AIAW, you're going to choke to death if your members don't join us. And so they left them no alternative. So that was the original uh, mentality. And it has been treated ever since as an obligation, a kind of uh, social engineering, a piece of political correctness that needed to be tolerated because of Title IX. But it was not particularly something to really invest in and really foster. It was it was a necessity, not something that the NCAA truly desired. And in your opinion, like, what is the NCAA like missing out on by not devoting enough resources, by not giving enough attention to their women's sports? You know, I think the missed opportunity here is that women athletes tend to be in school for four years. So Paige Beckers at UConn is an opportunity for real audience engagement for four years. Any marketer will tell you it's not just about the revenue dollar today or this month or even this year. What they're really looking for is long-term audience engagement, you know, keeping interest in an event or in an athlete. And women athletes, women basketball players in particular, have a unique opportunity to do that for the NCAA, which on the men's side really has a lot of one-and-done athletes. You know, a Zion Williamson, or a Kevin Durant is a very, very short-term presence on the campus for the NCAA, whereas a Diana Taurasi, a Caitlin Clark at Iowa, or a Kiana Williams at Stanford, these are four-year opportunities to build stories, to build audience engagement, to build revenue, to build eventing. And it's it's a missed boat. I mean, it's it's a real disservice to the athlete and to the programs and to the tournament. So... What recourse is there? Is the NCAA vowing to change? The NCAA has never changed anything except at the point of a gavel (laughs) held by a member of Congress. And so what needs to happen is, is Congress needs to step in here. You know, this is a body that really affects our major public universities and both male and female athletes across the board. The NCAA is signing contracts that these athletes then are held to fulfill. You know, it's not Mark Emmert, the NCAA president, who has to meet the obligations of a contract signed with AT&T or Turner. It's the athlete and it's the coach. And they deserve to know what's in those contracts. What are they being signed up for? What are the obligations that they're taking on? If you're a women's basketball player, every media appearance you make for three weeks, you will make with a bottle of Powerade set in front of you, and you'll be turned into a pitch woman for Powerade because Coca-Cola is a title sponsor of the NCAA and Powerade is their product. None of these women sign contracts to do that. Nevertheless, that's what they'll have to do for three weeks. To my mind, Congress needs to peel open these contracts, look at the language in them, and make them public. For the life of me, I do not understand how the NCAA, which governs our major public universities, which accept federal funding, can be allowed to keep its finances so opaque, can be allowed to practice such lack of accountability, and to sign billion-dollar and half-billion-dollar media and sponsorship contracts that absolutely nobody knows the language of but them. Sally Jenkins is a sports columnist for The Post. Rennie Svernofsky produced this story. 
This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. And now, one more thing about the unlikely resurrection of a superhero movie. You did this. I had to. You won't let me live. You won't let me die. The world needs you. In 2017, Warner Brothers and DC Comics released Justice League. Justice League has always been about the unification of DC Comics' greatest heroes. It's almost like the equivalent in sports of an all-star team. David Betancourt reports on comics for The Post. You've literally got DC Comics icons, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Cyborg. These are DC's most popular characters, and it's very much in the same frame of what Marvel Studios has done with the Avengers. This was the first time that DC was attempting to do something similar with their heroes on the big screen in live action. Even though Justice League had its own solid fan base, the movie at the time was an epic failure. How do I help? We buy him some time, he can stop that box from destroying all life on Earth. We hope. Well, I knew you didn't bring me back because you liked me. I don't. Not. And it turns out the original director, Zack Snyder, had a completely different vision for the film than what was actually released. So four years later, HBO Max gave the fans what they wanted and released Snyder's four-hour vision last week. David talked with politics producer Arjun Singh about what happened in 2017, why the new Justice League is a game changer for the genre, and the studio that released it. In March of 2017, when Snyder was doing post-production on the film, his daughter died from suicide. He was already having a bad relationship with Warner Brothers, him and his wife, Deborah, who was, who was a producer in the movie. They were butting heads with Warner Brothers about the tone of Justice League. They wanted it to be a little lighthearted, a little bit more humor, more fun. Despite the fact that he was done filming, they decided to bring in Joss Whedon, who had directed the first two Avengers movies. There were a lot of rewrites, there were a lot of reshot scenes. And the overall feel of the fandom was that there was too much interference in the redos for it to truly be a Zack Snyder movie. Why did they want him to be more like the Avengers at that time? It was because of the reception to Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice. That was a movie where he took tones from Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, which is one of his favorite comic books. There were the Snyder diehards that thought the movie was great. And then there were others that kind of said, this is too gloomy. They saw his departure as a chance to try and inject in Justice League what they thought was missing in Batman versus Superman. What was the reception just critically to the public? And then what was the reception from those diehards? I think it was very clear to everyone, whether you were a professional critic, 
or a hardcore fan that there were too many cooks in the kitchen. It was definitely two different movies. I think they tried to utilize a lot of Snyder's visual talents, but it was very clear that the movie just didn't click and didn't connect. And I think a lot of people that have seen the Snyder cut are now saying if it just would have been allowed to get to this story that he was trying to tell, the reaction might have been a lot better. So four years pass. Now we're getting an HBO Max re-release. What's happened between 2017 and 2021 to get us to that point? I don't think the Snyder Cut exists without HBO Max. I don't think at this point Zach had an interest in putting together a theatrical cut. It was also a combination of the fact that we're in a global pandemic and theaters aren't open. So I think the combination of realizing that even if they wanted to say, hey, Zach, let's make your cut for movies, putting the Snyder Cut uninterrupted at four hours on HBO Max was a chance for HBO Max to be a part of the superhero streaming conversation. How has the Snyder Cut been received? It's been predominantly positive. Now, don't get me wrong. Anyone who watched the Snyder Cut opening weekend of when it debuted, nine times out of 10 was a hardcore fan that just was super interested in it. But I've always believed that the success of superhero movies and Marvel Studios has done this better than anyone else. You already know the geeks are going to come. But if you want a billion dollar behemoth, You've got to get the geeks to show up and make them happy. And you've got to get that general public interest. We're definitely at the tip of the iceberg of something different. For one, theaters being closed for so long have shown how important streaming is right now to getting new entertainment out there. Will lead to more questions down the line. I think there may be pondering as to whether you would want to continue something like that. But I think studios don't want to give that much power to the fan. You want to keep the fans happy, but you also don't want the fans in the kitchen all the time as well. So I think there's going to be, you know, this attempt to find a happy medium in getting the talent that you know can keep the fans happy so that there aren't similar Snyder Cut demands in the future that might derail the project. David Bancourt is a comics reporter for The Post. He talked to Arjun Singh, who produced the story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Maggie Penman mixed today's show. You can learn more about the stories in today's show at postreports.com. And you can join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Lina Mohammed. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. Post.